You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. Let's turn back the hands of time to July of 1932 and meet 20-year-old Seattle, Washington resident Sylvia Wilson, who had just met the man of her dreams. He was 32-year-old Thomas Sherwood, and this handsome prince was everything that Sylvia could have ever dreamed of. He was a highly successful Los Angeles stockbroker who just showered her with flowers, gifts, and adoration. Now, the great distance between their two homes was of little importance. You see, when Tommy was back home working, the two just sent love letters to each other on a nearly daily basis. And while they were unable to see each other often, they were able to spend a good amount of quality time together. Tommy would either drive his shiny deluxe Ford coupe up to see Sylvia, or when he was more pressed for time, he would simply hop a flight to Seattle. Then, three months after they met, Tommy Sherwood was so head over heels in love with Sylvia that he decided to pop the question. And without hesitation, and with her parents' approval, Sylvia agreed to marry Tommy. But what she couldn't have foreseen was that a seemingly unimportant event that was to take place in Redondo Beach, California, and that lies about 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers to the south, that a seemingly unimportant event would forever change the trajectory of her life. And it all began with a small advertisement that ran on page 3 of the October 14, 1932 publication of the Redondo Reflex. It read, quote, Notice of Meeting Regular meeting of Board of Trustees of Redondo Beach City School District for October will be held at Superintendent's Home, 559 Avenue A at 7 p.m. Monday, October 17. Now, having been a classroom teacher for 30 years, I can tell you that most Board of Education meetings, while they're highly essential to the operation of a school district, they really are quite monotonous. You know, there's lots of discussion about important things like policy, finances, and staffing, and so on, but rarely does anything occur that I would say is earth-shattering. And this meeting of the Redondo Beach School Board that day was no different. In attendance was Superintendent Elliot B. Thomas, Board President C.C. Cribbs, Board Secretary Charles O. Pierpont, and Board Member George Strait. No, he is not the country singer. Anyway, Perhaps the only unusual part of this meeting, at least from today's point of view, was that Superintendent Thomas's wife, Olive, served dinner to all the guests. As a side note, that just got me thinking, maybe we should try that today. 
Free meals would certainly increase the attendance of these poorly attended uh, Board of Education meetings. Free meal, you know, I'll be there. Anyway, uh, back to the story. Around 7.40 p.m., a matter was brought up for discussion that required paperwork that Thomas had back at his office. So he agreed to make a quick trip over to the school to retrieve those documents. With his office just a few blocks away, he should have returned to the board meeting in no time. But he didn't return. So Olive became alarmed and telephoned his office around 8 p.m., but there was no answer. Then, 15 minutes later, the board members decided to walk the few blocks of the school to see what was taking Thomas so long. When they arrived, they found Thomas's Buick sedan parked outside the building with its engine running and the headlights on. But Thomas wasn't in the vehicle. In fact, he was nowhere to be found. So they went into his office, switched on the lights, and they were shocked by what they saw. The place was in complete disorder. Furniture had been overturned, curtains were ripped from the windows, a wooden gate was twisted from its hinges, and a steam radiator was torn loose from the floor. A coat that was known to belong to Thomas was found, but it had been ripped in half along the back, and the two pieces were in separate locations on the floor. The office safe had been marred in an attempt to crack it open, with a chisel hand drill flashlight and a pair of work gloves lying right there in front of it. Then there were rubber heel marks that could be seen trailing down the hallway towards the building exit, as if someone had been dragged out against their will. It was clear that an incredible struggle had taken place. Investigators believe that Thomas may have walked in while his office was being burglarized, fought with his assailants for several minutes, and then was kidnapped and driven away. Now near the entrance was a broken chair that police thought may have been used to beat Thomas into submission and detectives found a jimmied window, which was probably used by the bandits to gain entrance to the building. But the one thing that wasn't found in the office was blood, and that was a hopeful sign that Superintendent Thomas may have survived the attack. I should mention that Thomas was a well-respected member of the Redondo Beach community, so it was unlikely that he was personally singled out for the attack. He was a graduate of Laverne College and did his postgraduate work at the University of Southern California. And like many administrators, he began his career as a teacher, in his case in the Burbank City Schools. Then he became an elementary principal there, and then he served as principal of Burbank's John Muir Jr. High School. Finally, in 1929, he was appointed to the superintendency of the Redondo Beach Schools, placing him in charge of 1,300 students, four school buildings, and of course its staff. But now he was missing. As you'd expect, the search for Thomas began immediately. Residents of neighboring homes were questioned, but none had seen or heard anything out of the ordinary. All classes in the district were canceled the next day, and an estimated 150 schoolboys helped search the area for any sign of Thomas. And with the possibility he may have been murdered, police kept a constant watch on the coastline, you know, should his body wash up on the shore. All the vacant homes in the area were searched, while investigators questioned those with a known criminal history. But after two days of searching, only two things were certain. First is that Mrs. Thomas was a complete emotional wreck. And second, investigators had yet to uncover a single clue as to Mr. Thomas's fate. Well, that's not exactly correct. While investigators were unable to uncover further information regarding Thomas's possible kidnapping or murder... 
the pieces of the puzzle were beginning to come together to create a whole new scenario. Then, on Thursday, October 20th, 1932, remember this all started on a Monday night, Captain Norris Stensland of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department announced, quote, We have evidence now that Thomas met with no robbers when he went to his office Monday night and that he was neither kidnapped nor killed. We are satisfied he went away on his own volition, although we do not know why nor we have any idea. The case is a complete mystery. Well, Olive Thomas just couldn't believe her husband would have done such a thing. Quote, There is no motive. He had no worries of any kind. I know that. Yet it had become clear to investigators that Elliot Thomas did have worries. They learned he had lost a large sum of money in the stock market. Now keep in mind, this is during the Great Depression. And that his life was insured for $20,000. That's over $385,000 today. Of course, pad on that policy could easily erase all of his debt. Then there was the circumstantial evidence. The safe-cracking tools that were left behind by the supposed burglars weren't strong enough to, quote, blow a baby's bank. And on the morning of his disappearance, Thomas took his car in for urgent repairs, and the mechanic noticed that on the back seat there was a large bundle that was covered by a blanket. Hindsight makes you wonder if he had a lot of his stuff under there as he was preparing to go. Then, around 3 o'clock that afternoon, school gardener J.R. Dent observed Thomas transferring his personal belongings from his Buick into a distinctive maroon-colored Ford that had red wire wheels. Dent stated, quote, At the time, I asked Thomas if he needed any help, but he waved me on. Later, he returned to the schoolhouse and said he was helping a lady. Regarding this car, which police already knew existed, Captain Stenson received a phone call from an anonymous woman who stated, quote, I just want to tell you to look in all the Manhattan Beach and Hermosa Beach garages for Thomas's car. Well, Stenson decided to play dumb and pretended he knew nothing about the second car. He replied, referring only to the car that was found running outside the crime scene, quote, We found his car. There's no mystery about that. Her last statement before hanging up the phone was, Don't be dumb. He's got another one. That's the one I mean. Now, the fact that Thomas owned a second car really wasn't a secret. Many people, and that included his wife, were well aware that he had made the purchase. What was puzzling was that he no longer owned it. And this is where the story begins to come full circle and bring young Sylvia Wilson of Seattle into the story. That's because Elliot Thomas sold that car to her fiancé, Los Angeles stockbroker Thomas Sherwood. And when not in use, Tommy stored the car in a rented garage on South Union Street in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, back in Seattle, seemingly unaware of the events unfolding down in Redondo Beach, Sylvia Wilson and Tommy Sherwood moved forward with their wedding plans. A wedding ring and a bridal gown were purchased for the big event, and on Thursday, October 20th of 1932, the couple and her parents drove 125 miles, or 200 kilometers, southward to Kelso, Washington, and obtained their marriage license. They then drove back to Seattle, and they planned to marry a few days later. Then, shortly after obtaining the license, the couple was visiting at the home of her parents, that's Mr. and Mrs. Vermont Holly Wilson, and when a radio news report came on that discussed the disappearance of Elliot Thomas, Tommy Sherry quickly walked over to the radio and he lowered its volume. 
Mr. Wilson would later recall, quote, he said it was too loud. Well, the next morning, Mr. Wilson picked up that day's newspaper, and he noticed something very peculiar about one of the pictures. The man who was about to marry his daughter looked remarkably similar to a missing Redondo Beach educator. Now, they say that everyone has a doppelganger out there, and I'm no exception. I've been stopped several times over the years because people mistake me for Good Morning America's George Stephanopoulos, and that's when I point out that I'm the better-looking of the two. Anyway, it was far-fetched, but could Tommy Sherwood and Elliot Thomas be doppelgangers? Or maybe somehow they were twins? Or even worse, could they be the same person? I'm going to keep you in suspense for just a short while as we take a brief break to hear a few words from our sponsors. So I'll see you on the other side of the break. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more, We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. Now, just prior to the commercial break, Mr. Wilson had noticed a strong resemblance between his daughter's fiance and Elliot Thomas. The Wilsons planned to ask Tommy Sherwood about his resemblance to Elliot Thomas at a prenuptial party to be held that evening. 
but as you can probably guess, he was a no-show. Instead, Sylvia Wilson received a note that read in part that he was, quote, very sorry, and that he was on his way back to Redondo, quote, to make amends. The truth was that Tommy Sherwood and Elliot Thomas were one and the same person. Elliot had met Sylvia while vacationing in Seattle, created that Tommy Sherwood persona, then he transferred ownership of his car to Sherwood and faked his disappearance so he could leave his troubles behind, marry her, and of course start a new life. Captain Stenson requested that police in Washington find and arrest the missing superintendent, which they did. But since he had not gone through with the marriage to Sylvia Wilson, he couldn't be charged with bigamy. As a result, they released him and Elliot Thomas agreed to drive back home and surrender to authorities there. In a statement to reporters, Sylvia said, quote, It's all over now. All I want to say is that I'm very, very sorry for Mrs. Thomas. She was fooled worse than I. I know that she must feel terrible about the whole affair. I want her to know that I'm entirely innocent of trying to take her husband from her. He told me all along he was single. Surprisingly, Mrs. Thomas was willing to take her husband back. Quote, I think I still love him. My heart holds no hatred for him, only pity. I am glad he didn't marry this girl. He's been wonderful to me for these 12 years. I don't see any reason why he should have done this. Perhaps he doesn't know either. Elliot arrived in Los Angeles that Saturday evening, having had disappeared, if you want to call it that, for less than a week. He voluntarily surrendered and made a short statement, quote, I've made a bad mistake. I'm sorry. Captain Stenson then announced there would probably be no charges filed against Thomas. Quote, the only thing we have against him is breaking a 25-cent gate at the schoolhouse where he staged his kidnapping stunt, and that's a minor matter. Yet there would be consequences for his actions. Redondo Beach School Board President C.C. Cribbs announced, quote, Thomas was automatically suspended under the state school law. There will probably be official action on the matter this week when the board can meet. In other words, Thomas had to either resign from his position or they were going to fire him. But Thomas did more than hand in his resignation. That Monday, he admitted to Los Angeles County District Attorney Buren Fitz that he had diverted school funds for his personal use. He simply forged the signatures of the Board of Trustees members onto documents and that released funds for the payments of things like maintenance work that was never done and materials that were never purchased. He then used these funds to pay off debt to purchase that new car for the airplane flights to Seattle and, of course, to shower Sylvia Wilson with all those gifts. Thomas expressed to D.A. Fitz, quote, I don't know why I did it. I began to speculate in 1930. At first, small amounts, then larger ones. I can't remember just how many warrants I forged, probably between $8,000 and $10,000. Now, adjusted for inflation, he stole between $154,000 and $193,000 of public money. Anyway, he then handed over to Fitz what was left of the money. That was $2,600 in cash and 500 bucks in traveler's checks and he accepted all of the blame. Quote, No one else is involved in this. I did it all myself. He added, 
I knew I'd be found out eventually, and I wanted to confess so as to spare my wife any further sorrow. Before being locked in the slammer, Thomas made one request. He wished to go visit his nine-year-old daughter, Genevieve, who had been staying with relatives. And this was agreed to, and upon his return, Elliot Thomas was charged with forgery of school warrants and placed in the county jail. Unfortunately, he had no money remaining for bail. His wife Olive told the press, quote, I am proud of him that he had enough courage to return and face what he has to face. I was the first one he told about this when he returned to the city last Saturday, and he has followed my advice to make a clean breast of everything. I only wish I had known or suspected these things sooner. They never would have happened. In a nationally syndicated story penned by Erskine Johnson, Thomas said, quote, I guess I just went haywire. I don't know what I was doing. I thought I would leave all this, the school and everything, and just go away and marry this other girl. I made plans to kill Thomas and live as Sherwood. I love my wife and could not just disappear and leave her to face the humiliation that was bound to follow. Thomas originally planned to plead guilty to any charges that were filed against him. Yet his lawyer advised him to initially plead not guilty and that would buy him some time. Now why he needed this time was kind of odd. It was done so Thomas could help the county auditor find the funds that were stolen. You see, he had done such a good job of forging signatures that none of the board of trustees members could distinguish their genuine signatures from those that had been forged, so they needed Thomas's help to find out what was stolen. And while the search was still on for the missing funds, Elliot Thomas was indicted on five counts of forgery that involved the theft of $768.50. On November 2nd, 1932, Thomas appeared in court and pled guilty to two of the five counts. District Attorney Fitz agreed to drop the other three counts, believing that the punishment for the two remaining counts was sufficient. Five days later, Thomas was sentenced to a term of 1 to 14 years at San Quentin. Thomas began serving his sentence on November 19th of 1932, and Sylvia Wilson made it clear that she would not be waiting for him to get out. She said that she was, quote, through with him. Now, according to Ancestry.com, Sylvia would marry four times after that. She passed away on November 5th of 2002 at the age of 90. And Mrs. Thomas wasn't waiting for her husband either. Ten days after he entered San Quentin, she filed for divorce. She requested custody of their daughter Genevieve and $150 per month in support. That's about $2,900 per month today. Now, How an unemployed educator in prison is going to pay for that, I haven't a clue. Anyway, a teacher herself, she became an administrator and was ultimately appointed as principal of the Nettie L. Waite School in Norwalk, California in July of 1952. Sadly, she passed away on March 13th of 1956. Olive Sue Stouffer Thomas was just 54 years of age. And this leaves just one of the principal character in this story to discuss. That's Elliot Thomas himself. He would be paroled from San Quentin on December 19th of 1934, having served just a little over two years in prison. He was fully discharged on January 19th of 1937. Then, on May 6th of 1939, 42-year-old Elliot would marry 38-year-old Olinda H. Kirby. It was the second marriage for both of them. 
Professionally, what happened next is very surprising. You know, today a disgraced educator will most likely never teach again. It's kind of like being branded with a scarlet letter, but that's not what happened here. After his release, he obtained a teaching position in the Porterville, California School District, and in 1943, he was appointed principal of the Woodrow Wilson Elementary School in Oxnard, California. Then, on February 10, 1949, the district superintendent, that's Clarence A. Brittell, died, and they needed someone who could quickly take over the position. Hmm, just who on the staff did they have who could fill that role? Any ideas? This is a real tough one, isn't it? Well, on February 19th, it was announced that Elliot B. Thomas had been appointed as acting superintendent of the Oxnard District. And it was at that time that the Board of Trustees first learned that Thomas had a prison record, but they kept their findings hush-hush and they received permission from the state that allowed Thomas to continue in that role until the school year ended in June. But on May 28th of 1949, under threat by another Oxnard principal to out Thomas for his past sins, Thomas went straight to the board and told them the whole story. And it was headline-grabbing news in Oxnard for a few days, but the district allowed him to stay on as acting superintendent. And based on his excellent work at the school, they opted to renew his contract that year as principal of the Woodrow Wilson School, a position he would hold until his retirement in 1956. Thomas would continue to play an active part in the Oxnard community. His main work was with the Oxnard Boys Club and with Rotary, having been appointed president of both organizations at different times. Elliot Bull Thomas was 85 years old when he passed away on December 4th of 1981, having completely repaired the life that he so badly damaged. It's a perfect example of how there can be forgiveness for one's sins. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Now, having researched this story for the last few weeks on an administrator, um, it got me thinking about my years as a teacher. Now, there's this old joke in uh, teaching that those who can't teach administrate. Basically, they get out of the classroom, become administrators. And I don't really think that's true. Although I will say that there are a lot of teachers who get burnt out in the classroom dealing with the daily grind of grading papers and dealing with kids that don't behave properly and so on. And what they do is they see administration as a way out. And this isn't true for everybody. And some of them go on to be really, really great administrators. And others, as just like any other profession, there are mediocre administrators, administrators and then there are some that are poor. Anyway, this is kind of... Uh, thing that I want to read to you here. It was written in 1989. It was published in January 1989 in the Physics Teacher magazine. And it's written by a guy named William Dubuvitz, who was a physics professor at Middlesex County College in Edison, New Jersey. He's uh, now retired. And it's a bit of humor on what happens when you get too many administrators, how schools accumulate more and more and more administrators. And this is true not just of schools, but any big business where you get more and more executives who seem to do nothing, which probably isn't true, but it just appears that way to the people who work under them. So here we go. And if you don't follow all the signs, don't worry about it. Just kind of get the gist of what he's saying. The heaviest element known to science was recently discovered by investigators at a major U.S. research university. The element, tentatively named administratium, has no protons or electrons and thus has an atomic number of zero. 
However, it does have one neutron, 125 assistant neutrons, 75 vice neutrons, and 111 assistant vice neutrons, which gives it an atomic mass of 312. These 312 particles are held together by a force that involves a continuous exchange of meson-like particles called morons. And since it has no electrons, administratium is inert. However, it can be detected chemically as it impedes every reaction in which it comes contact with. According to the discoverers, a minute amount of administratium causes one reaction to take over four days to complete when it would normally have occurred in less than a second. Administratium has a normal half-life of approximately three years, at which time it does not decay but instead undergoes a reorganization in which assistant neutrons, vice neutrons, and assistant vice neutrons exchange places. Some studies have shown that the atomic mass actually increases after each reorganization. Research at other laboratories indicates that administratium occurs naturally in the atmosphere. It tends to concentrate at certain points such as government agencies, large corporations, and universities. It can usually be found in the newest, best-appointed, and best-maintained buildings. Scientists point out that administratium is known to be toxic at any level of concentration and can easily destroy any productive reaction where it is allowed to accumulate. Attempts are being made to determine how administratium can be controlled to prevent irreversible damage, but results to date are not promising. Anyway, when I read that years ago, I just thought it was very humorous. It's not that I really think administrators don't do anything, um, but there's always this kind of complaint that they kind of take it easy and drink their coffee and go to conferences, and you just get more and more administrators as time goes on. But I have to tell you, I never, ever want to be an administrator in a school. It's not my personality, and there's a lot of things uh, that they have to deal with that I just don't enjoy dealing with. As I bring this episode to a close, I just want to remind you that my email is steve at uselessinformation.org, and feel free to contact me with your thoughts on this episode or really any other story that I've ever done. If email is not your thing, you can go to my website, that's uselessinformation.org, or you can contact me uh, through Messenger on Facebook. Just a reminder that my new book, The Flipside History, is currently available. Also, be sure to check out my two previous books. Those are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. And all three are collections of long-forgotten true stories, just like the one I just told. Be sure to subscribe to the Useless Information Podcast through your favorite podcast platform, and then you'll have immediate access to new episodes when they're released. My Twitter feed is at UselessInfoCast. That's at UselessInfoCast. And be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there, and it should pop up. Anyway, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening, and take care, everyone. Bye. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.